Welcome to Post Game with Paul Golden, a sports and faith podcast. I'm Tim Donnelly. Thanks for joining us. Today's special guest is retired all-star baseball pitcher Dave Dravecki. In this episode, Dave recounts his incredible comeback during the 1989 season with the San Francisco Giants. Following the pitch heard around the world, Dave describes the physical and emotional impact of his cancer and eventual amputation of his left arm and shoulder. Dave unpacks his subsequent battle with anger, clinical depression, and self-described identity crisis. You'll appreciate his vulnerability as he shares the spiritual lessons learned through the journey of suffering. Stay tuned to the very end to hear details on Dave and his wife Jan's ministry of endurance and hope. Now here's your host of the post-game podcast, Paul Golden. Well, it's a pleasure to have former Major League Baseball pitcher Dave Dravecki uh, joining us on the post-game podcast. Uh, Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to visit with you. Well, thanks for joining us. Just uh, for our listeners that may, may have never have heard of you, many have have. Many might not know your story. Just a quick recap. Uh, you grew up in Ohio, the Buckeye State. You were drafted by the nearby uh, Pittsburgh Pirates back in 1978. And uh, if I understand right, in the minor leagues, you played up in the Buffalo uh, which at that time was a double A for the Pirates. Now it's triple A. You yeah. played winter ball down in Columbia, South America. And then you were traded, I think it was at spring of 98, or I'm sorry, 1981 to the Padres. Mm-hmm. If I understand right, you were in triple A in all of all places, Hawaii. Yes. Yeah, that was the following year in 1982. I've been to a lot of triple A ballparks. I, I don't think of, <laughs> I think triple A Hawaii is probably the, uh, that would be the place to be if you're going to be in triple A. Well, it was the creme de la creme. However, when you went to the mainland, it was a long flight and you stayed there for 21 days. Oh, boy. Well, making that trip from Hawaii, you did make your way to San Diego for your major league debut. uh, If I have it right, June 6, 1982. Yes. Any special memories, family, friends that were in the stands that day? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I remember calling my mom and dad and they flew out and... Their friends who were living in Yorba Linda, uh, just north of San Diego, um, they may have come down to uh, uh, to spend the time with them uh, to come and watch me play. But uh, that's, oh my gosh, that's so long ago. So hard to remember if there was anybody else. Well, that'd be 40 years ago, June of 1982. You've had a great, you had a great, you were six years there with the Padres. You made the All-Star game in 1983. You pitched two scoreless innings. The Padres went into the playoffs that year, and not only the playoffs, you went all the way to the World Series. And uh, I think that, that was 1984, right, against the Tigers? Yes. Yeah, that was 1984 against the Tigers. And looking up your stats, you had 10 in the third scoreless inning. So you did your part <laughs> out of the bullpen. So, yeah. It, but then after six years in San Diego, you were traded on the 4th of July, 1987, up north uh, to uh, San Francisco Giants. And uh, you also pitched in the playoffs that year, if I'm correct. Uh, but then uh, tell us about that offseason, I think 88. I know you found the, there was a lump in your arm. I think you went on to pitch opening day uh, for the Giants against the Dodgers. Uh, Fernando Venezuela, for many of the old baseball guys, you remember that, that name. Things were going great from my perspective in your career. And then what happened later in, in 1988? Take, take us through, I call it the rest of the story. In 1987, in the winter, I had noticed a small pea-sized lump halfway between the shoulder and the elbow. 
Went into spring training, didn't bother me. There was nothing that came from the MRI that they did that caused them to have any concerns. As a matter of fact, they not only did an MRI on my left arm, but my right arm because they couldn't detect anything on my left arm. Hmm. So they checked my right arm to see if there was any distinction between the right and the left. And nothing came back inclusive. So obviously at that point, it was much smaller and wasn't detected. But then opening up against uh, Fernando, winning that ball game, thinking this is going to be my year. And all of a sudden I started having some problems with my, uh, with my shoulder, totally unrelated to the lump in my arm. And as a result of that, I, I started to struggle a little bit midway through the season. Then they sent me on a rehab assignment to Phoenix. That would, didn't work. And eventually I had to have surgery on my shoulder, a partially torn bicep tendon. I was really struggling with my recovery, my comeback to do, you know, to, to help the club in 88. But during that period of time, all of a sudden this small lump had started growing. And our thought was it looks bigger, but you're in rehab for shoulders for your shoulder surgery. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have atrophy. So this could be the result of atrophy and this mask is probably something like a blocker's bruise where in football you get hit hard, it tears muscle fiber, creates a hard mass, and they call that blocker's bruise. Well, that's what they thought had happened to my arm where somewhere along the line from the excessive amount of throwing, all of a sudden there was scar tissue from tearing muscle fiber. Needless to say, by September of that year, it was now half the size of a golf ball sticking out of my arm and that was not good. Hmm. And so we went in and, and uh, at that point, the season had come to an end. We went to uh, the Cleveland Clinic and at the Cleveland Clinic, the MRI came back that in fact it was cancer. And so at that point on October 7th of 1988, which was our 10th wedding anniversary, I had surgery to remove the tumor and 50% uh, of my deltoid muscle. I was in surgery for 10 and a half hours. Um, it was intense. While there, they did cryosurgery where they froze all the cells in the area, which ultimately killed the bone, the humerus bone, by freezing that whole area. They knew that the bone would regenerate and grow back, but they had no idea how that would correlate with me trying to come back and pitch. So obviously, post-surgery, the most important thing was me to be able to get use back in my left arm and hopefully someday to be able to play catch with my son in the backyard. I mean, that's all we were thinking about. At that so point. Low expectations. Very low expectations. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, as we progressed through rehabilitation um, and therapy, all of a sudden, um, I started developing strength. My arms started feeling better. I started getting really good range of motion. And the next thing you know, the doctors are saying, look, everything looks really good. If you want to try and make a comeback, you can start moving towards that direction with your workouts and your therapy. And so that's where I got engaged with the Palo Alto Sports Clinic and Larry Brown, um, who was the head of the clinic there. And they literally took me through probably the most intense six to eight week program that I had ever been on. And so much of it was, were things that I was very unfamiliar with. It was a very foreign form of exercise, but it was to really dig in deep within the shoulder and to develop strength where most people normally don't develop their strength. 
And, and it was, it was starting to work to the point where the therapist said, Hey, let's go out and play catch. And, you know, we started playing catch and, and he's like, gosh, Dave, he says, it doesn't look like anything has changed in your delivery. He said, I thought we would have to rework everything from the ground up. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, when you lost 50% of your deltoid muscle, you ended up losing 90%, 95% use of that muscle. So at that point, um, you know, as things progressed, I mean, I went from playing catch with him to actually working out with him to then joining the club, you know, having simulated games, throwing bullpens to all of a sudden them saying, hey, look, as long as there's no pain, um, we'll send you down to A-ball and we'll get you some starts in A-ball. And so I went down there and they gave me pitch limits. Every time they gave me a pitch limit, I met the pitch limit and threw a complete game. Wow. So they would give me 75 pitches in a seven inning game that I pitched in a double header in my first comeback start. And I threw 76 pitches and we won the game four to two and went seven innings. And then the next game they gave me, I think it was a hundred pitch limit, went nine innings. We won six to three. And I threw 93 pitches. So within the 100 pitches, nine inning game. And, and, and then they bumped me up to AAA. And I pitched against Kevin Bass, who was on rehab assignment for the Tucson Toros. And I was there with the Phoenix Firebirds pitching for the Giants AAA team and ended up going nine innings, um, throwing a complete game with less than 100 pitches and winning three to two. So I have three starts, met all the criteria through three complete games and won all three games. Wow. Impressive. So fast forward to August 10th, 1989. Yes. Tell us about that comeback after more than a year, your first major league baseball game back at the candlestick. You know, Paul, I guess the easiest way to describe it, it was overwhelming. It was amazing. It was awesome. Uh, and, and I was extremely thankful that God had given me another opportunity through all these amazing people that had come into my story and helped me physically and emotionally to get that point. And there were a lot of friends who were encouraging me spiritually along the way. So, um, that moment was just a moment before the game even started where I stood on the mound and I just said, God, I am so thankful for all the people that you put in my life to help me be, be in this place, standing on the mound in this moment, um, getting ready to throw a big league game against Cincinnati Reds. When the doctors told me that outside of a miracle, I would never pitch again. So that was a pretty special day. I was in college at the time that summer, 1989, your comeback, you starting in that game, making the comeback was national news. I was on network news. That was on all the sports talk shows. This was a huge deal for you to come all the way back. And I just remember that uh, vividly. And uh, as I'm sure you do, tell us about five days later, you're in Montreal, you're on your second start after that amazing comeback. I'm sure an emotional high of the comeback. Uh, tell us about what happened next. You know, I was very excited to be back in the saddle, so to speak, and now a part of the ball club and actually contributing to our team. And, and so that day against Montreal went out and was feeling great. And, you know, and each inning went by and I'm pitching extremely well. I found that rhythm 
I'm in the groove. At the end of the fifth inning, I went into the dugout, felt a little discomfort in my arm, but it was basically, you know, it, it felt no different than what I would normally feel pre-cancer. And so I just kind of shrugged it off. And, you know, it was one of those twinges that pitchers experience and went out in the sixth inning and Tim Raines with that was at the plate after I started struggling a little bit. And I reared back to throw a fastball and my left arm snapped in half. And, mm. uh, and so I went falling to the ground and Will Clark had, I mean, sprinted out to me. Mark Laton, the trainer for the Giants, raced out to the mound. And, and it was, I was just in incredible pain, overwhelming pain in that moment. In reviewing for this interview, going to YouTube, watching that video, knowing what exactly what happened, but watching it again just makes me shiver. Do you watch that? I mean, is that moment forever seared in your mind or how, how do you handle that now? That was a traumatic event. You know, when I started uh, traveling the country post-career telling my story, uh, someone created a video for me that had pieces of the baseball experience in it. And one of them was um, what little video they had of me breaking my arm. And so I use that in every, almost every speaking appearance that I have. So, so there's a constant reminder over 30 years of what happened. Mm -hmm. and, and to be honest with you, it's okay. You know, because um, when I retired from the game, I had no regrets, Paul. Um, you know, my whole attitude in playing the game of baseball was um, I, I believe God allowed me to experience my dream becoming a reality. And that was to become a major league baseball player. That first day I had fulfilled that dream. The next eight years and 116 days or 115 days were icing on the cake. And so for me, that was my perspective throughout my career. I was just really grateful that I was one of those few that had the privilege of taking their gift all the way to the highest level. And, and so I was just so grateful that, that I had what I did have, that when the time came where I had to walk away from the game and retire, I had no regrets. And so when I think about those memories, they aren't memories that hurt. They're, they're memories that are fond memories, memories that bring back a lot of joy with living out this dream as a little boy, getting to be a major league baseball player. And sure, those, those moments around the cancer were difficult, but at the same time, um, I never struggled with watching the game after I retired. I never struggled with going to the ballpark and being there to watch a game. Um, I've been working with the Giants for the last 11 years and have enjoyed every moment of being back at the ballpark, hanging with the fans, sharing that story and those memories. It's been wonderful. Mm, that, that was a whirlwind a few months there in that 89. Uh, as I'm reading your book, The Comeback, which is a great book, by the way, your father-in-law dies in September of that year. Yeah. Then in October, while your team is celebrating the National League Championship win, you break your arm again, right? In kind of the post-game uh, crowd. And yeah. then if those were alive at the time, would remember this in October 17th, 1989, the, the Bay Area earthquake during the World Series between uh, the Oakland A's and the San Francisco Giants. There was a 6.9 earthquake that basically did devastating damage, $5 billion in damages, 67 people killed. Uh, we stopped the World Series. It was a major event. And uh, I think of the earthquake you personally went through. Uh, but also collectively there in California. Yeah. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, 10 days later, after the earthquake, you're back in Cleveland Clinic, right? And what did the doctors tell you about your cancer? 
When I got back, they were concerned that there was a possibility that the cancer had reoccurred. But at that point, they wanted to wait about three months and have another follow-up checkup. And in the meantime, um, my wife had contacted her cousin, who was a liver oncologist, and she had talked to him about you know, what the doctors were saying to get, get his opinion. And he said, well, look, he said, I don't know what they've seen. I'm, I, I really don't have all the information in front of me. But one thing I want to encourage you to do is just get a second medical opinion. And so he said, you know, I fellowshipped under the chief of surgery at Sloan Kettering Cancer Research Center in Manhattan. And, and he said, I'd really like you to go. I will set up the appointment with you and I want you to see Dr. Murray Brennan. And so at that point, we flew out to New York and met with Dr. Brennan. And he said, well, let me, let me look at the, um, the films and I will get back to you and let you know what my assessment is. When he got back to us, he said, you know, I really think that this isn't waiting months, but days or weeks Max, he said, I'm, I'm concerned that we're going to need to get ahead of this thing in order to keep it from growing. And at that point, one of the wonderful things about the cancer that I had was that there were two types and there was a very aggressive cancer called a fibrosarcoma that was contained, encapsulated within a benign tumor called a desmoid tumor. Well, that kept it from becoming metastatic. However, the aggressive fibrosarcoma grew within the encapsulated desmoid, and it was pushing itself up towards the main cavity of my body, where there is less margin to do surgery um, because it was literally overcoming muscle tissue. And, and so as a result of that, he said, look, you can, you can stay back for the holidays with your family, but the first of January, literally, I think it was January 2nd, I want you here and we're doing surgery. And that began the second phase of the journey, which is what we like to define as, you know, we had the, the experience of the good, which was this story of seeing a boy's dream come true and getting to the big leagues. And, and then now all of a sudden we entered into the bad phase of our story where the cancer had reoccurred. And that January surgery was the first of what would be three surgeries that would ultimately lead to the amputation of my left arm and shoulder June 18th of 1991. And, um, and, and in between all of that with the surgeries uh, were two types of radiation therapy and a staph infection that lasted for 10 months. So it was just a really, really difficult period of time in our lives. And, and during that period of time, Paul was when all of a sudden you just get weak, you get weary from the continued day after day after day facing of suffering and mortality, your mortality. And so it impacted me physically, it impacted me emotionally, and it impacted me spiritually. And it was, it was hard. It was really hard. But when the amputation occurred, I actually thought, oh my gosh, once I have the amputation, you can get rid of all my problems because this left arm has been what's been the problem. But you know that only lasted for about three weeks of you know, really being strong and you know, facing this relatively well. Um, but then all of a sudden reality started setting in and I started experiencing an identity crisis. If I can no longer be a baseball player, then who is this man? I wasn't under a multi-year contract that would guarantee me money out years beyond. 
Um, and I wasn't a multi-million dollar a year contract baby. Um, so I was going to have to work and that was hard. What am I going to do with my life and how am I going to, how am I going to provide for my family? So it was just a really, really difficult period of time that ultimately led to um, just going deep into depression, clinical depression, along with my wife. And here we are trying to raise two kids at the time that were, I think, five and two to six and three, somewhere in that range. And man, that was just a, that was, it was hard. It was really hard. You mentioned your deep, dark time battling, understandably so, depression and trying to, you know, what next? You retired, your career is over. What was it that brought you out of that depression? I, I met you recently. You're an up, optimistic, upbeat, great guy. What was it that changed from the dark Dave Dravecki to where you are now? You know, Paul, I think, I think there's a combination of things that come into play. Obviously, um, I didn't turn my back on God during that time. So our faith, even though we found ourselves weak, it was then that we were able to experience God's strength in the midst of our story. It also took the help of others, the encouragement of others. Um, it took people saying some hard things to me because of my wife being in a very difficult place with her depression and me resisting going to get help. And so those people who stepped into my world and challenged me, actually, I believe God used to move me to a place of embracing this idea of getting help for my wife and then discovering three weeks into the process and right after my amputation that I needed as much help as she did. And so moving into the counseling was one of those pieces that was significant in the healing process. And here's the reason why. For the first time in my life, people were probing into the deep, dark recesses of my soul. Mm. And they were wanting to know what I was feeling about the pain that I was experiencing. You see, prior to that, I didn't know how to articulate that. My wife knew very well how to articulate her pain. She didn't know what was going on deep inside. And what these counselors were able to do for us was peel back the layers of the onion to get to the core root of where the issues were. And it had nothing to do with us wanting to separate, wanting to divorce. That was never a thought for us. Although during that time, I have to be honest with you, I gave my wife a lot of reasons to leave because I had become verbally abusive. I was just struggling so much. And because I couldn't articulate that pain, what came out was anger mm -hmm. because I didn't know how to identify what was happening and then talk about it. So I would suppress it. Well, you can only suppress it so long before it erupts. And then it becomes an outburst of anger, which is what I became, an angry man. So moving into the counseling, all of a sudden, God started showing me in particular that there's freedom in releasing those things. There's freedom in getting that stuff out and talking about it. And so what that counselor did was force me to become vulnerable about where I was at. When he made me vulnerable, the very thing that I feared the most was the very thing in acknowledging that would set me free. And that thing that I feared the most was exposing that I was weak and exposing that I was afraid. Mm. And here you are, a former number one starter, major league pitcher, fame yeah. and success, and having, to, having that taken away from you rather 
uh, abruptly and traumatically, uh, that's a tough road. That's a tough road. Yeah. And I was at the peak of my career. I had matured late in my journey. I was one of those late bloomers. And, and so at 33 years of age, I was just hitting my stride with years left in the game. And then this happens and it's all gone. And so, you know, I have to tell you the thing that, uh, that was so beautiful was, you know, number one, announcing that we were depressed um, didn't sit well with some groups of people, unfortunately. Then when we went on medication, that really didn't sit well with some groups of people. Um, and so it was really hard because there was a lot of pressure that was coming from the outside with people that we thought were our friends and loved us in this community called God's community. Instead, you, you found some of Job's friends maybe along the way. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I just read that story this morning, Paul, and, and I'd sit there and I've, I, I've thought about this often, you know, when they open their mouths, that's when, you know, chaos hit, you know, those first seven days of silence were a beautiful thing. And, and we didn't have uh, those first seven days. Unfortunately, we ended up experiencing, you know, when the, when the voices all of a sudden became very, very loud. Um, but through the counseling, it brought stability. And we, Jan and I eventually moved out, found healthy community that would embrace us and love us through it instead of trying to fix us on their own. They just created a safe place for us to actually experience God's love through them as we move through our pain. And we got to the other side. And we moved to Colorado. This was 1993. And Jan said, hey, I just received a book that um, this counselor wants me to endorse. And it's about anger in men. And I thought, how ironic is this? And she said, you know, he's only 30 minutes away. We can call him and, and, and you can go there to get counseling for your anger. And you know, Paul, at that point, I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds awesome. Because I said, I don't want to be this man. I said, I don't want to be that guy. I, I want to be set free from this anger. So mm. any tool that I can get my hands on or hand on, um, I want. And so it was Gary Oliver. And Gary spent a month, a, a year with me, walking through the issues that I was struggling with. And again, drawing deeply going deep into my soul. The beauty was he was drawing also from this well of life through his words that were so encouraging to me and so helpful in moving me through these issues with anger and how to identify anger so that I would never have to become Mount Vesuvius again. And that just became a beautiful, beautiful part of our story and, uh, and I, I was so grateful, so grateful for that. We're here with a retired Major League Baseball pitcher, Dave Dravecki. We're talking about his comeback, uh, which I think is a, a good uh, uh, reminder of his career. In that book, but there's so many people endorsed it. Al Michaels, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Chuck Swindoll. Just, but one, one thing that stood out to me was Chuck Swindoll's statement. Comeback is not only a book to be read in all seasons, but a testimony to believe for all reasons. I love that. And I think you're epitomized the comeback, not only your career, but more so spiritually. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, you know, when I, when I hear you read those names off, um, I'm floored that those people would have endorsed this story and, 
And it, again, it's, it's just, it's one of those things looking back now where you realize, man, God was in control of all of this. And I, I, I can't explain, but I simply trust in looking back all that he did back then is what helps us looking forward being able to trust him even more with our lives every day. As you said, it's a who's who, Vin Scully, Tom Seaver, Al Michaels, George Bush, you name them. At the very end of the book, I think it's the last words of the book, you have written the Apostle Paul's words from uh, 2 Corinthians 4, where it says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, why are those words so significant to your story? For my wife and I, it was our life first. You know, therefore, we do not lose heart. Uh, the reality is that outwardly we are wasting away. And I experienced that in a very real way. Yet, the encouragement came when Paul said, we are inwardly being renewed day by day. And then here's the kicker. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so when I read that, I realized, here's the apostle Paul talking about light and momentary troubles. A man who has been persecuted significantly. I've never experienced that kind of persecution, so I can't even put myself in his category. However, if he can say that, then I need to embrace that and see it as light and momentary troubles because they're achieving for us an eternal glory. That is my hope. And that far outweighs them all. And, and the encouragement to say, so we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal is, is understanding the perspective that we are to have here on this planet, realizing that all this stuff is temporal. And one day what we cannot see here now, we will see for an eternity. And I can't wait to see what that is even though we've only been given glimpses, I know that it's going to be more beautiful than any of us have ever experienced or can fathom. And so that hope, that promise is why Jan and I embraced it because there's so much encouragement in it. Don't lose heart. Paul's saying, don't lose heart. We got this. God's got this, man. You know, we're, we're going through stuff in life, which is all a part of the journey that we're on. But remember what God's doing as a result of that in you and lean into that and trust it because there's something waiting for you on the other side. And that's your hope. And the only reason why Jan and I can say that, Paul, is because of what took place on the cross through Jesus Christ. Because my belief in him is what brought me into his family and made me an heir to the king of the king and the Lord of Lords. And to be considered an heir in his family is far greater than any heir with a family here on this earth, even the wealthiest of families. And, and that's the family that, that we are a part of because of what Christ has done for us on the cross that allows for Paul to say, 
Therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart because of Jesus. That is a great reminder for all of us listening. You played seven years in the majors. You played in the World Series. You were an all-star, and you lived the, perhaps the greatest comeback in all of Major League Sports history. What are you doing now? You mentioned uh, still working with the Giants. What other ministries or opportunities are you involved in now? 30 years ago, um, we're in our 30th year, 30 years ago, my wife and I started a ministry that is now called Endurance with Jan and Dave Drabecki. And uh, we set up a website to encourage families, endurance.org. We took our books, Paul, and we thought, how can we encourage people if I can't get to everybody that's hurting? I can't get face to face, but we've published our story and we have these books why can't we use these resources to send as a gift to families to encourage them, to read, um, to understand our story, to understand where God's at in our story? Where, where is God when it hurts? Mm. That beautiful book by Philip Yancey. Yes. To, to help people understand where God is when it hurts. And so we partnered with Johnny Erickson Tata and created the Encouragement Bible. And we send that to every patient and their family that comes across our path with our ministry. And most of it is word of mouth that ends up going to the internet, going to our website. And on the homepage, there's actually a place where you can send a gift to a friend. Is it primarily for uh, families experiencing cancer or any type of uh, health-related issues? Any kind of issue where you're needing encouragement, come to us. Um, Because the whole idea of why we do what we do is to offer comfort, encouragement, and hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Endurance with Dave and Jan Dravecki, endurance.org. That's also will be in our show notes, endurance.org. Uh, do you still have uh, baseball? You go to a lot of games uh, there at the new uh, stadium in San Francisco. How, how involved are you in the, with the Giants? Yeah, it's been really good. Um, you know, I, uh, as an ambassador... Um, I work with several other players and we do a lot of sweet visits during the season, which is absolutely wonderful. It's so much fun to hang out with the fans, but I also do some speaking for the ball club when they have a request for an alum to be at an event. Um, And nine times out of 10, it's a fundraising event. And so helping them as they connect with nonprofits within the Bay area um, that obviously have the support of the San Francisco giants. So several of us play in that role And I get the privilege of being one of those guys that um, gets to represent the organization across the Bay Area. And it's a it's been a great privilege and honor to be a part of that team and that family. Um, So I feel very fortunate. I'm also still traveling and speaking, although COVID has brought down the the opportunities significantly. Um, So I still get out there to tell my story from time to time. And I I really enjoy that. Um, So that's been really good, too. Well, your testimony, your comeback, your before and after story is just incredible. I encourage people to, to go, maybe go on Amazon, get that book called The Comeback. It really chronicles that year uh, that you and Jan experienced, but certainly encourage all of our listeners to go to endurance.org and uh, follow Dave that way. Dave, uh, any final comments or thoughts before we uh, say goodbye? I mean, it's been a pleasure to visit with you. I, I think if there's anything that I would want people to be left with, is just to realize how much you are loved and to understand that the greatest love 
that was ever expressed on this planet came through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. And that sacrifice of his life was to allow us, to give us access to a relationship with him that God ultimately desires. And that act on the cross was an act of forgiveness, was an act of redemption, was an act of hope, was an act of promise. And so no matter where your listeners find themselves, um, I would challenge them to look at Jesus and know what he's done for you and embrace that love that he offers so freely. Dave Dravecki, thank you so much for sharing your remarkable comeback and your testimony with us on uh, Post Game with Paul Golden. Thank you and God bless. Thank you, Paul. God bless you. We trust you were encouraged by this special conversation with Dave Dravecki. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd ask that you subscribe to the Post Game with Paul Golden podcast. This way, you'll never miss an upcoming episode. Forward this podcast to that sports fan you know and tell others about this unique sports and faith podcast. I'm Tim Donnelly. Thanks so much for joining us for Post Game with Paul Golden. Paul Golden.